Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, July 4th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured more than 120 poets from 13 countries on five continents. And we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us at poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or you prefer credit cards. With us today is Aaron L. Sabrut, with whom we'll be discussing his poem, Wildfire, and my poem, Embers. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of July 5th. On July 5th, from 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground, We Play Clean Open Mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Meditation Monday writing workshop with Alex Petunia. You can find out more information at The Poetic Petunia on Instagram. Again, that's at The Poetic Petunia on Instagram. On Tuesday, July 6th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their weekly first draft open mic. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Royal Marsh for those between the ages of 13 and 23. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 7.30 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Karis Books and More will be hosting the collection plate, Kendra Allen in conversation with Kais Lehman. You can find out more information at karisbooksandmore.com forward slash event. Again, that's karisbooksandmore.com forward slash event. Karis is spelled C-H-A-R-I-S. From 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Dirty Open Mic via Instagram Live at Poets underscore Playground underscore. Again, that's at Poets underscore Playground underscore. On Wednesday, July 7th, from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Do More Baltimore will be hosting their World Tour Poetry Club. You can find out more information at domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. Again, that's at domorebaltimore.org forward slash workshops events. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their poetry workshop with Louis Veresto. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. On Thursday, July 8th, from 7 to 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, True Art Speaks will be hosting their Reverb Open Mic, hosted by Lieutenant Suni. You can find out more information at trueartspeaks.org forward slash events. 
Again, that's at trueartspeaks.org forward slash events. True is spelled T-R-U. From 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Museum of the African Diaspora will be hosting their open mic night, this time featuring Tanya Lungsford-Links. You can find out more information at moadsf.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's at moadsf.org forward slash calendar. On Friday, July 9th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information by messaging the host, Andrina Leanne, via Instagram at survivor.andrina.leanne. Andrina is spelled A-N-D-R-E-E-N-A. Leanne is spelled L-E-E-A-N-N-E. From 7 p.m. West Africa time, Graciano and Warham and Nopal Flower will be hosting their Corona Versus open mic via Instagram Live at Graciano and Warham. That's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. From 7 to 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Defunct Magazine will be hosting their reading and open mic with Rooster Martinez and Chibi Ordunia. You can find out more information at defunctmag.com. That's D-E-F-U-N-K-T-M-A-G.com. From 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting the Lunario Poetico, their Spanish-language open mic, Microfono Abierto en Español. You can find out more information at lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. Again, that's at lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. On Saturday, July 10th, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. India Standard Time, our past poet guest Umesh Mohikar will be hosting his weekly Let's Unmesh Life open mic. You can find out more information at Let's Unmesh Life. Again, that's at Let's Unmesh Life on Instagram. From 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Poetry Center San Jose will be hosting their Poetry Lounge. You can find out more information at pcsj.org. Again, that's at pcsj.org. On Sunday, July 11th, from 4.45 to 7 p.m. British Time, Andrina and GJ will be hosting their Adult Survivors Open Mic. You can find out more information at Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. Again, that's at Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. From 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their monthly Soapbox Poets Open Mic with Carol Scott, featuring Tommy Domino, Juan Cardenas, and Suayiko Zamorano Chavez. You can find out more information, again, at lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. Again, that's at lapoetsociety.org forward slash events. From 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Keep the Mic On will be hosting their weekly poetry event. You can find out more information at keepthemicon.com. Again, that's at keepthemicon.com. From 6.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Poetry Center San Jose will be hosting their San Jose Poetry Slam. 
You can find out more information at PCSJ.org. Again, that's at PCSJ.org. And now let us welcome our Poet Guest of the Week, Aaron L. Sabrut. Hi, Aaron. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you, Imogen, for having me. Before we get into your poem, Wildfire, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I'm Aaron L. Sabrut. I use he and him pronouns. Um, I'm an Egyptian-American transgender man. I'm currently living on unceded Suminas territory, uh, also known as Vancouver Island, Canada. Mm. I'm a poet. I'm a comic artist. I work as a legal policy and research and advocate for um, LGBTQ prisoners. Mm. And uh, I'm psyched to be here. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. I'm, I'm really glad that you're here as well. And it's great to hear about your work, advocacy work for uh, prisoners, especially uh, LGBTQIA marginalized people. The prison population right now must be suffering tremendously just from COVID outbreak and nobody's really taking care of them. Yeah, it's a huge problem. A huge number of COVID outbreaks have taken place in prisons and like it's, it's really, you know, like makes us think about like what are the purposes of these institutions and like how far are we willing to let them like extend for before we you know realize that they need to be more humane ways for us to have conflict resolution in our communities than the kinds of prisons or maybe even any prisons that we have now yeah i think there are various steps during the lifetime and of uh, a human being where prevention could be taking place uh, so that they don't end up going to these so-called correction facilities where the resources are not really used to rehabilitate people, uh, more to just lock them up and sort of throw them away from society. Definitely. I think especially, like, working with folks who are, you know, like, we can use the umbrella terms, I guess, like, queer and trans, like, a lot of it, first of all, starts very young, how, like, folks are actually forced into, you know, like, criminal behavior or, like, their normal behavior is criminalized because they, you know, like, experience discrimination and they don't have opportunities in their family life or in their school life or educational opportunities because of discrimination. And I think the more that we look at, like, prisons and policing and that kind of stuff, like, yeah, like you kind of identified, you just see that there are social problems underlying that are not being addressed that are actually more important than, than you know, police and prisons. Right, right. Yeah, I think we tend to end up using the blunt force um, way of, you know, sledgehammering away things that really need much more nuanced approaches. It's a lovely way to put it. Thank you. Um, but before we continue on this, because, you know, we could spend the whole time just talk about this because it's a <laughs> huge can of worms. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you got into poetry. Yeah, definitely. This is definitely such a long and, like, big part of my life from a very young age. Uh, I think for me, it's difficult to talk about poetry without also talking about being transgender mm-hmm. um, I think that writing for me and specifically writing poetry for me was a really big part of like coping with 
being transgender as a teenager and as a youth and knowing that I was trans and not being able to do anything about it because of my family situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm a masculine person and because, you know, like a lot of boys are sort of trained to kind of like not express their emotions even to themselves Mm. I really was never like a diary or like a journal type of person because like I didn't have the ability to actually record what was happening to me and how I was feeling in real time Mm. and so poetry in some strange way allowed me to write around what I was having happen and like around the feelings that I was having and around my experiences in a way that I could reveal themselves to me I mean like reveal them to myself Mm. uh, without like having to have figured it out in advance or having to even like say you know like exactly what happened Mm -hmm. so then as you are writing a piece for instance you are also discovering how you feel about a situation then is that pretty much the way it unfolds definitely I think, like, I see my own poetic voice as, like, the ultimate unreliable narrator in the sense that, like, I don't, you know, like, I'm not claiming to know anything about the subjects that I'm representing or even about, like, the things that I'm saying. Like, I don't even necessarily identify with them. I'm just, like, trying them on to see if they fit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Do you remember when you wrote your first poem? I was in high school and I had an English assignment that was based on the Wallace Stevens poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Mm. And my assignment was to write my own version. Mm. Um, And I wrote a poem. I just remember the title. I can't remember any of the substance of it. (laughs) But I remember that I wrote a poem entitled 13 ways of looking at my mother. Mm. I think that was my first time as a teenager, like confronting like some of the experiences that I was having at home in Mm. like the written form and realizing that like putting it on paper was a way to like take it out of my body and my like anxiety brain. Mm -mm -mm. So so then in essence, once you looked at what you wrote, you were able to like realize that this is how you felt about it. It actually took yeah. external uh, expression of that to internalize or have an internal understanding of it. Definitely. Wow. Ooh, that's, in, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like I, I also have some of that as well because you know, <laughs> I think even if we are pensive about certain things, there are some things that until we see it, we don't really recognize it. For me, I feel like the voices that color my self-talk are like too loud for me to like get through to like some of like deeper emotions or like just like having like new thoughts and like writing it down as a poem or as a short story or as just like a random like thought dump in my notebook, like a little allows me to try on a voice other than the ones in my head in a strange way. Like, obviously, it's also coming from my head, but it's not, like, the ingrained voices. Mm. And that, like, I don't know, like, it makes, it it allows for a new perspective to emerge, I find. 
Mm, okay, cool, cool. Um, yeah. and, and so you just went from there, You from that high school experience, you continued to write uh, poetry then? Yeah, when I was in university, I became really, particularly as an undergrad, I was really influenced by, like, slam poetry. Mm. Um, I think that's a really interesting way that a lot of youth, and, like, especially a lot of youth of color are exposed to poetry. Mm. And I think it's really cool because, like, I come from a North African Arabic tradition where, like, poetry recitation is, like, a huge part of our culture. And Mm. I really appreciate that, like, this spoken word community is like really emphasizing the importance of like performing poetry which I think is something that people kind of look down on at least that's what I found when I like transitioned from like going to my like spoken word cafes in the evenings to my classrooms during the day when we were reading like modernist poetry and things like this and like poetry that was too like performative or spoken wordish was somehow frowned upon. Yeah, there definitely seems to be some kind of divide between the two where one seems to be much more expressive and direct and the other is much more like um, hiding the, I don't know, something something bad comes to mind when I say hiding the, but (laughs) just just hiding something that's almost like, how do you say things, simple things in the most complicated and floral way possible? Almost, almost that's the on the page kind of achievement uh, at this point, especially. Yeah, it is super interesting. I think that the two kind of like the, the like how the school of written poetry and the school of spoken poetry, like definitely have interesting things to say to each other. Mm. But I think that I also struggle with those two voices, even within my own work. Like I definitely write a poem sometimes and I'm like, this is a poem to perform. Mm. And I write another poem sometimes and I'm like, this is a poem that like people can read. Mm. And yeah, it's interesting too. I'm just like hearing what you said about like, sometimes the spoken poetry is more confessional and more personal. And I think that's also something we look down on in culture. Like people really don't want to see like an eyes story sometimes, particularly if that eyes story is coming from women or queer people or people of color. Yeah, yeah, it feels, I feel, I think for a lot of people who are going from the, on the page to the spoken word, and maybe the spoken word for them seems too confrontational, especially since, again, there's a lot of people of color who are using that stage, using that form to confront um, what they're going through and, and to tell people, relate people what they're going through, which is being part of which is being shut, being silenced about what they're going through as well. Totally. And I mean, I think that confrontationality is fun too. Like, I feel like spoken word poetry is like continuing the like thousands of year old um, African and like West Asian tradition of the rap battle. Mm -hmm. Like poetry has always kind of been a bit confrontational. Like you're trying to say that you're, impression or your emotion or your your like image that you've decided that is your favorite is like worthy of attention and I think that like sometimes when people assume that their poetry is not confrontational or not political that's a disservice because they're just like hiding the ways that actually it does 
confront certain people and it is political in certain ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the very act of writing poetry, depending on the person who's writing it, is political in that very act. Mm-hmm. I have another question for you, but I, I want you to actually <laughs> read your poem before I ask this question. So if you don't mind reading your poem, Wildfire, for us, then we can start talking about it. That sounds great. Wildfire. I want to bathe you in rose water in a clearing among the juniper trees. It will be cold, that I must promise you. The mountain wind licking across your skin like cat tongues, rough and scaly. Can we consecrate this space of hazard trees, dry tinder waiting to be animated by a spark? I walked across this land 5,000 years ago, and ancestors showed me that seeds that only flower when caressed by flame, how water without fire cannot make the desert bloom. We watched explosions across the dry plains at night, celebrations, invasions, or disasters. What do those men know about fire? Have they stood in the crackling chaparral as it burned and seen the germ of life laid bare? In a village clustered around an oasis, the spirit of the flame moved through the palm trees and mouse dens among the rocks. The water never rose to save them because it knew the land must be burned clean to grow again. So... This poem has a lot of that element of both destruction and also rebuilding from the ashes, like that that phoenix image arising from the ashes. And I wonder if there was a deliberate consideration of going from using the image of rose water into and then going into the fire image. Hmm. I guess, yeah, like in my cultural context, rose water is cleansing and like in, in herbalism rose is like believed to have astringent properties it's like purifying it like tones your body and like yeah I think that's definitely a part of it I think that I am really interested in different natural processes mm. that take place that involve like recycling um, mm. you know I'm really into fermentation I love composting but mm. one that's really underappreciated is the importance of fire and when I was living in the southwestern part of the United States both in California and living in Dineta um, Navajo Nation territory mm-hmm. um, I I was just so interested in the way that people talked about fire and what people thought wildfires were for and how they were supposed to be managed and like in total contrast like how, how indigenous communities historically have managed fire and have managed their landscape using fire as as a tool rather than as something to be avoided and prevented. Yeah, I remember um, since um, (laughs) the wildfires in California has been becoming worse and worse over the last past few years, and that I think it was in 2020 they started talking about how the indigenous um, they should be the fire departments should be consulting with the indigenous nations to think about control burns so that the undergrowth is not allowed to sprout the way that they have. Uh, therefore, in a dry year or in the several past dry years, gave so much kindling to the little sparks that come through either down wires or, or lightning. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such it's such an interesting thing. I I went to high school on Kumeyaay territory, San Diego, mm-hmm. um, and you know, as part part of my biology lessons, because I had a cool <laughs> biology teacher in high school, one of the things that we learned about was that basically many of the species that exist in the natural grasslands and plains of the southwest of North America can only germinate their seeds when there has been a fire mm. and things like this. So actually the healthy ecosystem needs cyclical fires. And, you know, like this is part of the wisdom of Kumeyaay people. And, you know, in their own communities, they do have controlled fires and they often, you know, don't have as bad wildfires because they understand that if the ground is like burned in like a, a, a careful way a managed way and a regular way at the right stage of the decomposition of all of the trees it can actually spark growth rather than harming the forest mm, mm, yeah yeah definitely was there a particular incident that made you write this poem well first of all when did you write this poem <laughs> um i believe i wrote this poem sometime around last January or February. Yeah, last January or February. I actually wrote this poem in a, (laughs) this is kind of funny, in a, during a New Mexico Public Regulation Commission hearing (laughs) where they were actually talking about what the state of New Mexico's wildfire policies were going to be for electrical companies and what needed to be done. And it was really interesting because there's not, not a lot of wooded places and that's something that should really be protected. And I was so frustrated by their discussion because so much of it was about how much of the landscape needed to be cleared, like clear cut so that fires couldn't spread because they believed that the solution rather than having like cyclical burns or other management practices was that they should just clear areas around where there were likely to be fires so the fire couldn't jump across this like dead zone that they were going to create Mm -hmm. to other areas Mm. yeah they were talking about that during the wildfires in california as well to uh to sort of uh, have this something of a ditch where there's nothing but the fire jumps right with the wind fire actually jumps and Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like the, the logic of the border, right? Like it's the same the same idea that like by closing ourselves off to China last March, we were somehow going to avoid getting coronavirus. It's like nature doesn't care about the arbitrary human lines we draw on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially the haphazard way of doing it. There, there are. A, good ways of doing it and, and they're the haphazard way that we did it here in in the u.s where we were like oh we'll close certain doors but not close other doors based on uh, incredibly prejudicial beliefs about the cleanliness of a certain people and it's just really prejudice driven bigotry driven policies that obviously did not work so yeah it's interesting because I think we can think of like also a kind of ecological bigotry in the context of like forest management and stuff. I've been really interested in learning about like practices of forest management, partially from like listening to these kinds of conversations. And then also I was really captivated by a book I read last year called um, 
the Mushroom at the End of the World by Anna Lowenhaupt Singh. Um, okay. And it's, it's an anthropology of matsutake mushrooms. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that she talks about is how different forest ecosystems produce different things and that often human ecosystem managers like to have forests that are really tidy and like landscapes in general that are really tidy and she calls it like being arranged according to the logic of the plantation because (laughs) you know these landscapes we think that we can impose our own sense of order on them and then it will function well if we clear out of the brush all of the brush out of our forests or we draw these lines so that like there's going to be some form of containment but actually like the health of nature is in allowing it to be be as complex as it is with you know all of the shrub species and all of the animal species and all of the fungal and micro microbial species and also like this the cyclical fires which are part of the ecosystem in ways that as settlers we could stand to learn a lot from indigenous nations and traditional ecological knowledge about yeah yeah and and which which we have sort of blocked by committing genocidal acts toward those indigenous nations and to basically wipe out generations of knowledge that really could be helpful for all of our survival. This poem, it seems to have layers of meaning apart from this, you know, coming out of uh, a forest management meeting. (laughs) So I, I was wondering what to you is the meaning of this poem? In the second stanza, you you refer to your heritage, and the third uh, stanza, you talk about men trying to control through various different ways, like invasion, disasters, things like that. So I, I was wondering what you were thinking when you put those elements in the poem. I don't know. On the one hand, like I'm a bit resistant to the idea that like poems have some kind of like meaning mm-hmm. beyond like the, the images mm-hmm. um and also like I just want to clarify like I'm I'm not indigenous I'm just Egyptian um <laughs> I'm, I'm indigenous to Egypt but I'm not like indigenous to North America but I think I've always been really interested like in my own relationships with indigenous people in my life and like you know like coming to terms with being a settler and being an immigrant and all of these kinds of like dynamics like what kind of cross-cultural commonality that those of us who are immigrants have with indigenous people because often it's a lot I mean Mm. we like often have experiences of colonialism back home that lead to us immigrating in the first place um and so I think that's kind of one of the things that I wanted to put into play Mm -hmm. um and I think like yeah I just was fascinated in this poem and thinking about like the different valences of fire like it seems like kind of silly thing to say but you know just the images of different fires and like I wrote this poem obviously during this very tumultuous year and during a lot of political unrest when I was revising it and thinking about you know an image that's coming up to me now is when I was in Santa Fe over the summer Mm -hmm. there was the 4th of July and I lived in South Santa Fe so it's a lot of like Latino families mostly um, and like a, a lot of people would fire off fireworks during the day in their houses but it was also an area where like when I first moved there a lot of Anglo folks who I knew in Santa Fe asked me if I felt safe there because it was an area that was like historically apparently known to have had gun violence and I found it to be like 
a perfectly safe little suburb with full mm. of really nice people. Mm. But it was interesting because during the day when people were firing off fireworks, I would think to myself, like, is that a gunshot? Like, <laughs> it's hard to tell. And like, yeah, I think <laughs> there's just this, this like presence of fire around us and in ways that we don't really acknowledge and, and like it has so many like celebratory energies and like warming energies but also like violence and those things are more intertwined than what we think I guess <laughs> yeah yeah I mean like fire fireworks and gunfire are made of the same material so it's mm. yeah it's, it's interesting to you know put the same thing into different uses where it could be incredibly entertaining and it brings this feeling of elation and also to end somebody's life. Mm-hmm. It could be one and the same as well because, you know, when you're dealing with personal fireworks, there's always a, a little bit of danger involved as well. Definitely. Yeah. One of the questions that I was going to ask you previous to you reading the poem is that you were talking about coming from a North African culture and this practice of reciting poems. And I remember hearing from this group um, of Moroccan poets who said that one of the things that their cultural practice is actually not to share their poems, they write their poems, it's almost like a diary, uh, but they don't necessarily share it. And that they started a group particularly especially during the COVID 2020 COVID year to allow people to share their work so that people do not feel like they're alone in how they're feeling. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. I keep forgetting the order of countries because Egypt is the furthest east of the North African culture uh, countries. Um, I forget how many countries um, between you and Morocco. It's definitely true, and, like, thank you for the reminder that, like, people homogenize North African cultures a lot, and, like, the tradition that I'm referencing comes from um, Arab culture, um, which is kind of complicated in a North African context, because, like, even for myself as an Egyptian person, I speak Arabic, but I don't know if I would say that I was, like, an ethnically Arab person, and that sort of really starts to fall apart the further west you move along the, the North African coast. So that's very valid, I think. And, like, I don't super know a lot about Moroccan, like, traditional cultures, like Amazra and stuff like that. Um, But, yeah, that's really interesting. And, like, also a great reminder about, like, the diversity of Africanness and the diversity of, like, poetic practices and the, like, what, yeah, what different uses poetry has for people. Yeah, so I was wondering when when you were talking about um, this tradition of reciting poetry out loud, can you tell us the context of that? Because you you did live there, but I don't know for how long. Totally, yeah. So like poetry, poetry as a as a recited um, word form in Arabic tradition is very 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 old, um, like thousands of years. Mm-hmm. One of the stories is interesting because I've been reading the the satanic verses by Salman Rushdie, which really like turns this story on its head. But like Mm -hmm. the story of the revelation of the Quran in like Muslim mythology, we can say is kind of centered around the early history of it is actually centered around rap battles that took place Mm -hmm. in the 
western Saudi Arabian town of Mecca, which was the hometown of the, the clan of Quraysh. And the way that people would proclaim, like, their notoriety or proclaim their, like, allegiance to a particular religion or to a particular politician or a particular leader was through these poetic performances and mm. through the spread of Islam and through the spread of um, Arab culture through North Africa, which is which is a form of colonialism, which has mm. a very complicated history. I don't want to say that it was a good thing at all. Mm. But one of the things that was spread by that, as well as the Arabic language, is is like, yeah, these sort of, I keep referring to them as rap battles, because what they are are like these confrontational presentations of poetry where someone will present a poem and then immediately someone else will interrupt them and start to try and laugh more loudly and more attention grabbingly to the audience perform their poem <laughs> and it will include like insults to the person it will include like insults to the person's patron or to their heritage or to their lineage and like like you know, it's it really wasn't very different from what you could see on like World Star in our modern day. Like it really was the, the form of the rap battle. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So they're not restraining themselves to the modern debate rules. <laughs> oh no, ad hominem. Yeah, that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not full full ad ad hominem and ad whatever the, the words for women and non-binary people are in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, it, it's it's really nice to get a glimpse of where that comes from. Um, mm. and, and obviously being human and having the variety of humanity that there is, there are always going to be people who are much more extroverted, who are much more willing to thump on their chest and be like, I'm the one baby kind of <laughs> self-proclamation. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's interesting that you say that your poem came out of this fire prevention meeting um, <laughs> because my poem is also inspired by wildfires the ones in California that was burning at the end of 2017, where there were like, I forget how many fires simultaneously in both North and Southern California that was, looked like it was basically hell on earth. I don't, I don't know what was going on in your life at the time, but it was quite the event. Now looking back, it seems tame, you know, <laughs> after 2020. <laughs> Uh, but at the time, it was really shocking, you know. Um, and at the time, I think it was, it had one of the largest fires at that time. It would set a record as the largest fire in California. But then it quickly got replaced, I think, the, the year after. <laughs> so it's, it's so sad. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it is funny funny and sad it's kind of like how we've had the hottest year on record now probably like 10 years in a row like yeah unfortunately climate change is a straight line yeah yeah it's really oh my god uh, and then people still bring snowballs in into the chambers of congress um anyway <laughs> <laughs> because you know if it snows in my area it can't be hotter somewhere else 
how it works. Um, so I'm gonna read my poem, and then we can we can Please. talk about it. Embers. My anger seethes as injustice fuels its momentum. As I see cowardice and greed infect the city like a flesh-eating disease, men and women fall of their own choosing. Soon they'll run out of places to hide as a slow burn spreads over covert embers, consuming all in its path. As the spineless writhe to line up, lusting after phantoms rather than heed the clarion call, the fire finds fuel in the flesh of willing victims, blinding themselves with lies, though truth is more beautiful, while falsehoods easier to consume. Elect between a punishment from the law or the gods. I collect the last answers as time runs out. Burn, in apocalyptic fashion. Burn, so that courage can take shape. Burn, that we can fashion from the ashes of old disease refuse a brave new world. The recording is catching me snapping, but I love it. Um, <laughs> This poem is so good, and I really love, you know, speaking of performance, like, the performance style that you bring to it is really cool, and so, like, I'm seeing, like, a dramatic monologue of, like, a post-apocalyptic hero in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think when I first started to read this poem, especially since it's coming from a small female, Asian female, no less, uh, people were very shocked and dismayed by the amount of anger and, yeah, anger <laughs> that came out of me from reading this poem. I'm so here for Asian girl rage. Asian <laughs> girls have rage, yo. <laughs> like, we all have rage. Like, we all have so much injustice, and, like, I think that's so at the top off of this piece like I'm really interested to hear you talk about it rather than me try and project but like yeah I'm interested in in the kinds of injustice that you're working with and the kinds of greed then like yeah how how law kind of like relates to those things if you could like talk about that more yeah so at the same time the the fires were happening I was going through kind of personal hellishness where there were a lot of betrayals from friends and people who I thought would be upstanding people from the things that they have said. Uh, and even even their actions have suggested that they would be upstanding people, but they turn around and they were actually quite corrupt. And they were willing to issue their personal moral stance, or at least the, their proclaimed personal moral stance in order to help people who were obviously corrupt and who were obviously doing the wrong things and they were willing to rationalize away their actions and also silence uh, and, yeah. and uh, just uh, become enablers of wrongdoing by their silence and also by uh, their support uh, both covert and overt support of the wrongdoers I think an example of that would be, you know, think of the Kavanaugh hearings 
and then also think of uh, obviously the last four years (laughs) (laughs) the impeachment hearings all of these are are sort of good examples of where you know one will become incredibly both disappointed saddened and also angry over the horribleness that's allowed to take place because people are first and foremost uh, investing to satisfy their own greed at the same time uh, helping those who are making that environment possible by disenfranchising other people yeah. i like how in your piece like the the natural element the fire is like an intervention into that like it's it's like we can't continue to have this level of corruption we can't con- continue to have this level of greed we can't like continue to not address like underlying issues of inequality and racial and gender justice like the, na- the natural problems that we've created by our like forever growth world like nature is going to remind you that you can't forget about that forever it's going to come back and like in your poem i feel like the fire is like yeah, like the cleansing energy of fire, I think, is something that like I was working with in my piece, and I really see that, that in both kind of a different way and kind of a similar way in this one. I wonder if you could talk about like yeah, how you feel that that cleansing energy of fire, or if that's even the way that you would put it. No, I think you got it. I think that's exactly why your poem reminded me of this particular poem because <laughs> it had that. It's like without the fire. All of this uh, nastiness cannot be cleared away to allow new growth to, you know, burst open the seeds and to allow for a new environment to take place. I'm not one to support revolution. So the fire reference for me is something that a last ditch effort. It's something that, you know, I would rather not go with because no matter what, wildfire is not controllable. It hurts innocent people, um, just like revolutions hurt innocent people. And most likely, more likely than not, it hurts the innocent more than it helps the victimized. So it's not something I gladly see happen, but it's something both in nature, outside of man's uh, manipulation, and also within humanly society. We see that these sort of total destruction and then building on top of that happening when there's nothing else can be done it's so corruption is so rife so throughout the system that it can't do any other thing other than collapsing other than just sending something cleansing through yeah that's such a big struggle that i've been dealing with recently too like basically what happened yesterday was like the Trump supporters storming the Capitol building and like several buildings according uh, of, of state governments and things like that. And like for me yesterday, when I was watching this imagery, what it actually reminded me of was last summer participating in, in seeing, you know, like the movement for black lives and the protests that took place over the course of the summer and the way that those protesters were treated by the police, by the National Guard, by the federal police, when, you know, like, these people were allowed to apparently place pipe bombs in the Capitol building and were, like, left totally unscathed for the most part. I mean, I think it deteriorated to violence at some point, but, like, 
far later than circumstances of, you know, like peaceful protests on behalf of racial justice have deteriorated to violence in, in you know, the, the very recent memory, you, like yeah. in the last couple of months. And for me, that really, you know, like plays with what you're talking about with like, I also would say that I'm not a person who's like inclined to say like, yeah, let's have an armed revolution. I'm from Egypt. I've seen what that can lead to. Mm. I've seen that that can often lead to more repressive regimes. Mm. And I also see that I don't know how else to create the kind of change that we need and to create the kind of rupture that needs to happen from what we have now to a culture that like, a is sustainable first of all but b like is supportive of like economic justice and queer liberation and gender justice and racial justice and indigenous sovereignty like all of these things which i hold really closely as values but that i see that the culture as a whole doesn't hold closely as values Mm. and i think like yeah in 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 your piece like the fire kind of represents that rupture moment that i've feel like I'm waiting for like the opportunity to make a clean break and try again and I feel like that's such a yearning that I have right now Mm -hmm. yeah and I feel like it's so sad right because people have to be pushed and pushed hard into accepting certain realities that um, by the time they do accept them they have to accept the worst terms possible Whereas if they had accepted those realities earlier, they could get a much better deal. (laughs) I sound like I'm I'm doing some kind of bargaining course. Uh, (laughs) 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 But it it really is that because the conditions under which we are living is untenable. We cannot keep pretending like we are this wonderful democracy that's founded by these golden rule principles Whereas the fact is so far from that, we're a country founded on genocide, on the exploitation of kidnapped labor, and we don't want to recognize that, and and we continue to exploit that that legacy, um, you know, like the school to prison pipeline. Going back to what you're talking about with your work, advocating for a minority segment within uh, this large prison population. Just the conditions of relegating human beings to, again, cheap labor, because prison, speaking of wildfire, prison labor was used to fight wildfires. They were put in danger. It's reported that it's quote-unquote volunteer work, but it's not really volunteer work. (laughs) So. Yeah, I think that's that's such an interesting thing to think about and like even to broaden out to think about like this terminology of essential workers that has like propped up in our lexicon recently and the way that like, you know, I think that we're all hoping that this last year and this like tumultuousness that we're going through is going to be a wake up call for some folks. And the, the weird thing is that it has the opportunity to not be because as you were talking about like people are able to rationalize and hide from things very easily particularly Mm -hmm. like in context like 
I have the privilege to be a person who works from home, so I don't really experience the fear of exposure to COVID in the way that someone who works as a clerk in the grocery store does, Mm -hmm. or as someone who is a nurse. And I think that that's another way that, like, yeah, the disposability of labor, like, our, our whole way of life relies on these segments of labor that we, like, maintain as disposable and maintain as you know just like cheap and doing the work so that the rest of us can kind of like float above that as you might be able to tell I'm a bit of a commie but like I feel like there's definitely a class dimension to your poem and I think that like I I wonder if you if you feel that or see that and like if you could talk about that yeah I think what happened definitely has a class dimension it's definitely involved people who thought they can get away with certain things because um, they thought I was, you know, poor and inexperienced in the world, and they wanted to take advantage of that. And I realized that these were people who were targeting people from that particular category of people, sure. and there was deliberate targeting going on, which means that you know they are predators. Um, you know, if you, if you deliberately target people, then you are a predator. That's um, right. And so there is a certain sense of class going on. And the American struggle is par- partly a class struggle. And, you know, I think um, the racial divide sort of is the fog that we have to part in order to get to <laughs> the underlying class struggle as well. I'm not an advocate of communism myself because I I think of it as a system that could go very wrong depending on who's wielding that system because, uh, you know, you see various communist regimes that have become tyrannical in their own ways. I don't... Yeah, I don't particularly trust (laughs) any system (laughs) where human beings are operating it because I think a lot of guardrails need to be put into place in order to save us from ourselves (laughs) yeah definitely i think something that's really interesting about like state communistic experiments that have been done in the past um is interesting like egypt shortly after its revolution like they claimed that it was a communist country and like there were certain socialist policies which were taken and but like essentially became a state capitalist country, which as far as I can tell is what most quote unquote communist revolutions in the world did. But well, that's, like, I sorry think, to <laughs> interrupt. Is that after 2012? No, I'm talking about the 1952 revolution. Ah, in Egypt. Okay. Okay. Our like original colonization. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. 2012 was its own whole separate mess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, which which in some ways had to do with the legacy of socialism in Egypt, mm. but I think that one of the problems with state communist projects is, like, kind of going back, back to even, like, my poem, like, it just represents this idea that, like, everything can be planned and organized according to, like, human aspirations and, like, abstract ideas that, like, yeah, when people try to implement it often involves a lot of bloodshed and a lot of starvation and a lot of people not getting what they needed because it, like someone thought that it had to be centrally planned. Yeah, it, there is something to be said about centrally planning certain things, right? 
people that complain about big government don't seem to understand that, especially in this country, is like, yeah, we have a big government because we are a big country. It's three hundred million people. <laughs> We're like the what, like third or the fourth largest country in the world in terms of land mass. Of course, it, the government is going to be big. For me, what's what's important is to have a appropriately sized government. You know. <laughs> I don't believe in cutting redundancies completely out because I think just like the fat in our body help protect us, redundancies protect us. So to a certain extent, I like redundancy, but not to the point where we're just like feeding people to do nothing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting. I feel like I'm definitely a more like local like governance and like local like emphasis kind of person because first of all like I think I, I always like as as someone who who's an accomplice to indigenous folks like I always want to deprioritize like the U.S. and Canada for, mm-hmm. for and like Mexico also to be clear mm-hmm. and like Guatemala and all you know and on down like and I want to deprioritize those terms as like the way we think about our our our, like life problems and social problems and political problems because like i think one of the problems of modern democracy in general is that people think that, that like the process of running common life is something that people who you elect and who go somewhere far away from you are supposed to do for you Mm. and I think that one of the things that like having a more local scale and like having a more relational scale kind of shows is that like we have to take responsibility directly that's something really beautiful that I saw in in particularly the first few months of coronavirus Mm. was like the flowering of different mutual aid projects where people basically saw that like certain resources needed to be distributed in terms of you know like elders or immunocompromised folks who couldn't go to the grocery store anymore or couldn't pick up their prescriptions and like all of these things which like we could invent a social service to provide instead like the community bounded together to provide and like I it's interesting yeah I feel like in some ways I really like that kind of community action more than um having some kind of like formalized or professionalized like government intervention but also people people need to be funded and resourced so that they can have those kinds of community interventions in a way that like will actually meet everyone's needs yeah i I think that's one of the problems is that the mutual aid societies cropped up partly because there there was huge holes in our uh, safety nets these holes were cut deliberately by people who believe that people should just somehow pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, even though they themselves do not. You know, it's it's sort of like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, some of us don't even have bootstraps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think if there weren't corruption, if the people do not prioritize their own selfish wants, above other people's needs if we were able to you know operate on this sort of idealized level which people don't then (laughs) the mutual aid society as much as i like the fact that they cropped up they wouldn't need to exist 
And I feel the same way about sort of people who just say capitalism is bad, period. Again, it, any system that basically depends on human existence, which is basically all of our systems, <laughs> corruption is going to come into it because we are human. We have this problem. <laughs> we are problematic. <laughs> the weak, the weakest link is us, basically. Yeah, I guess that's kind of why I think of it as a scale problem. Actually, if that makes sense, like for me, because people are inherently corrupt, and because like not inherently, I don't think people are inherently corrupt. I actually don't feel that way. I think that our culture trains us to be individualistic and to take selfish opportunities when we see them mm -hmm. and that really exacerbates a tendency in, in in you know in all of us um but in some people especially but i think the thing about that is like my experience has been with these kinds of small scale projects is that like you know if you do have a small scale project and someone embezzles money they only took 500 bucks if you have a project that's at the level of the federal government and someone embezzles money they can take much much more than that and like I think that kind of scale idea is kind of what I'm, I'm sort of working with, like in my poetry and in my work in general, of just like trying to bring back like direct relationship. Because one of the things in, in doing like grocery distribution projects and things like that that I encountered was just the experience of meeting all of the people who lived in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Like, because we were going around and making sure that people knew we were operating this delivery service. We actually met many of the people in our neighborhood and we like, you know, wore our masks and stood outside and had a brief chat with them. And I think the reason people are able to be as selfish and as as opportunistic as they are, are is often because they don't see the value of the people around them, the animals around them, the, the resources and the, and the environment around them. And when you don't have a personal connection, it's very easy to like take advantage. But when you do have a personal connection, often that can be a way to be like, oh, this isn't just me like doing something harmless. Like this really affects, you know, my neighbor down the street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think there is definitely something about that. But that is also how nepotism takes place, right? Because we see exactly how our actions affect our immediate surroundings and usually that immediate surrounding is our close friends and our family and so then we are looking out mostly for the people we know rather than people we don't know so it always becomes like us centers or me center you know you, you know what i'm saying so the person centered and and however totally. large their social surrounding their social community is so it's a little bit of a conundrum because <laughs> for certain things larger governmental powers work really well like like roads for instance you know building highway a highway system a railway system uh distribution for vaccines for instance yes it needs local coordination as well because the local people will know the best way the local environment works. Uh, and so you, you need to have this coordination between both. And in terms of corruption, I've also seen more community-oriented cultures, people acting in corrupt, self-serving manners because, again, of this 
corruption within society makes them feel like, okay, I need to watch out for myself. They've been trained by that corruption to say, I need to watch out for myself because nobody, the government is not going to take care of me. If somebody violates the law and hurts me, uh, I have no protection. So I need to be the biggest influencer in <laughs> this particular area. I need to grab power. I need to have enough power so that I could be the one uh, that nobody can hurt. So there's that incentive as well. So that's why part of the problem with cutting huge holes in social safety nets is that it incentivizes this selfish behavior because we you know, realize that we cannot fight corruption as just everyday people on the street. We need to grab as much power as possible, as well, much wealth as possible as a protection scheme. Totally. So, yeah. I, think, I think something you're mentioning, too, that's really interesting is like, like both the nepotism piece and the self-centeredness piece, I think, like, require a certain, like, interpretation of, like, who is me and who is my community that, like, we can also challenge in really interesting ways. Like, I don't know, I mentioned earlier on, I'm, I've started to be really interested in like microbiology. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been really fascinating for me as someone who's like a practical microbiologist, i.e. a person who makes fermentations at home, mm-hmm. is that like me is actually not just like the one human organism whose like mouth is making this statement. Me is like, a human being, all of the bacteria, all of the fungi that live, live between my toes and in my other crevices, like mm. all of the, the organisms that like make my digestive enzymes. And so like, even then, like when we introduce that perspective, like, I don't know, I really think that like introducing a love of like all forms of nature is a really big solution to a lot of, of our social problems. Cause like when we appreciate the nature that's inside of us, I think that that gives, like, such a perspective of, like, oh, me is not a singular entity. Me is actually a plural entity. There's, like, millions of organisms inside of, like, quote-unquote me. And then, like, when you broaden that out, like, if I think about, like, just my partner now, I'm thinking about, like, a million organisms. And then, like, when you think about, like, the community that you live in I don't know like another thing that people often say is like well well, I don't live around any immigrants or I don't live around any queer people or I don't live around any black people and and it's like that's probably not true actually Mm. like if you had a more expansive notion of what your community was that would not be the case like for example where I live in the Pacific Northwest often people say they live in communities that don't have indigenous people but that's not true. It's just that they've never gone to the reservation that's like 15 minutes outside of town or they've never like interacted with some of the urban homeless people, many of whom are indigenous. And like those kinds of things kind of show that like we are around each other. We are like interacting with one another and like seeing difference. But I I just want to try and open people's eyes to that difference and how they're already like participating and they're already in relationship with people and like beings that are so different from them and that's like a cool thing and an opportunity rather than a scary thing and something that people should see as like a need to clamp down on like protecting themselves rather than opening themselves up 
like all of these like cultural and microbiological invasions that are actually good for us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you in terms of the definition of the self uh, and the definition of who we consider as kin and family and and kindred has a, a huge effect on how we interact with the surrounding world and how inclusive we can be, uh, how receptive we are toward other people. At the same time, I feel like we are each other's choir, and so we don't need convincing. But there, <laughs> <laughs> there are other people who do not feel that way, right? For them, their people means people who share their bloodline or people who share their skin color. Everybody will have a slightly different definition of what's me and mine. We don't necessarily agree, and these small differences can lead to a lot of conflict. <laughs> Again, going back to what happened yesterday, four people died. Did they go to Washington thinking that they were going to lose their lives? And for what cause? What benefit did they get if they were able to keep Trump in office? What personal benefit did they really get if they were able to achieve that? I, I, don't, I don't know that it was real benefits, but there was a perceived benefit, enough that they were willing to lose their lives, and some did. Um, and sometimes it's you know a heroic act to think that there are people who are willing to lay their uh, lives on the line for principles. Uh, and I guess these are some of the people who are willing to do that. Although for principles I don't believe in, I don't share in, still they were willing to lay their lives down for certain principles. Definitely. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting to think of it that way. And, and I think one of the things it's hard to admit to ourselves is also that I think people on both sides all think, you know, we all think we're right. So <laughs> how do we come to a compromise? How do we talk with each other? How, all of these things, like, we, we have to be willing to compromise. We have to be willing to negotiate. At the same time, we also have to stand on certain principles. We have to be true to ourselves. And these two sides, they don't necessarily mix well. <laughs> so it, it's... Well, I think that's why... I think that's why like I'm so interested in like community and relationship and like getting to know people who are physically around you because I think that in our sort of like internet day like it's really cool to meet super like-minded people like yourself and to kind of like connect and discuss our ideas but at the same time often people use that as a way to isolate themselves from people near them who they've already formed like a preconceived idea about mm -hmm. uh, and I think the interesting thing is that even in my own experience, like people who, you know, like whatever terminology is like the politically correct way to talk about them, like conservatives or like, you know, like neo-fascists or white supremacists or like American nationalists, like whatever you want to call that group of people, people who subscribe to those ideologies in some cases like they've closed themselves off to the ability to connect to other people but that, that's something that can be reopened by connection and then that person can realize like oh like 
actually, I would rather die for my neighbor's, like, chicken adobang, or I'd rather die to, like, be able to go to the Diné's ceremony, or, like, I'd rather die so that, like, unhoused relatives can, like, have a place to sleep, rather than, like, yeah, choosing to lay your life down for this psychic wage of whiteness, which just seems like the saddest possible choice. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, for us, that definitely makes sense. For them, if we think of it as a loss of identity, if we think of it as uh, if someone was to come and say, or if you feel like someone was coming to say to you, well, I'm going to take away your identity, whatever you value about yourself, I'm going to take away, wouldn't you fight to the death? I mean, I'm a non-passing transgender person. So, like, I experience that every day. Like, I have to explain to people that I use he and him pronouns. And, like, because I have boobs, people immediately ignore that, like, every time they interact with me. And, like, the thing that I find interesting about that experience is, like, you know, you survive. It's not the end of life for someone to, like, deny you your identity even for a very long time and like I think that one of the things that that the experience of actually losing having your identity be you know like not that I think that like for people to experience transphobia is a good thing and like I hope it doesn't come off that way but like one of the like side benefits to the overall negative experience is that like you know you realize that yeah, like your individuality and your personhood is something that is like negotiated socially and that's not that important compared to like what you do, how you act, how you hold yourself in the world, which like no one can take away from you. Right, right. And I think, again, it, it's something that I, I agree with. At the same time, I also want to think about the other side and how they think about things because if we don't understand how the other side think about things or how anybody we disagree with think about things and how their world operate we can never really fully have a conversation and i think it's unfair right because a lot of uh, people that we deal with on the other side has no desire to have this conversation with us and if we want to (laughs) break away from the toxic interactions that we have even if it's inadvertent interactions it does fall on us to make the extra effort it's not fair at the same time if you're in a relationship where one party doesn't care to take on the responsibility but you are stuck in this relationship then you're gonna have to take up that extra responsibility which sucks. Yeah, I think like, I think one of the things for me is like, I want to make justice and like being green and gay liberation and and, like racial justice and gender justice and all of these things like indigenous sovereignty. I want them to be, to sound cool. I want it to be fun. Like, I think that's one of the projects that I do in my poems. Like if I can show you that like, indigenous liberation is a beautiful poem or like economic justice is like a delicious meal in the park or like Mm -hmm. that you know like political protest is actually a street party and an opportunity for all of us to come together in art making and public performance like i think that draws people in a way that ideological statements 
can't and like never will as you said like people when they hear ideology they feel closed off to it but like yeah when you see someone who's just doing their thing and they are creating you know beauty and generosity in the world I think that's something that folks can connect to even if they don't necessarily think they're going to agree with what's going to be said at least that's my hope <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i agree with you in um that that people do when they interact with each other and a you know it's sort of like being fed a meal where you have no idea what you're eating and then finding out this thing you just ate that you find delicious is actually a part of an animal that you never would think of eating <laughs> kind of kind of thing that's right um secretly baking deep colonization into the pie yeah it it is it is kind of that but a a lot of these (laughs) folks who are have their blinders on is because they don't have that experience they have no desire to have that experience and this country exists in a state where they don't have to have that experience just think of redlining for instance you know deliberately Mm -hmm. sectioning sectioning off people and you know blinding our humanity to each other and because we are segregated a lot of times i feel like we self-segregate you know because we yeah and we feel a certain amount of safety to be with our own whatever our own really means and i feel like however we feel that safety they feel that safety too um and in that we actually share something in common (laughs) ironically yeah definitely I think that's such, like, a human instinct, and again, like, it's just about helping to, like, collectively redefine who and what is our own that we stick to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a multifaceted problem that requires a multifaceted solution, Uh, and I, (laughs) I like that, you know, like, these mutual aid societies are trying to do that uh, in, in the on the small scale community skills uh, that they are doing. And it is wonderful. And I, I enjoy seeing that, um, how successful they have been. And I hope there will be other solutions that, you know, we implement within the power that we can implement that. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today about our poems and, and, you know, the surrounding elements that go into our poems and the principles that go into our, our poems. Uh, before I let you go, I would love for you to tell us how people can follow you on social media online. Totally. So on social media, I'm at to reach poise on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Mastodon. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate our chat and our trying to you know, kind of talk amongst ourselves about how to solve problems. (laughs) Definitely. It's been really lovely to get to know you better, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. 
I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.